Welcome to Paradise Quest number 156. Today we're talking about hummingbirds. And hummingbirds are cool because they hum, and hence their name hummingbirds. They hum because of how they flap their wings, and they're fairly unique among birds in how they are such skilled flyers. So generally speaking, they have the same flapping motion as birds in general, but unlike most birds, they can hover in place. In fact, the only other birds, at least the only other birds that we know of, that can do that is the eagle. Yes, surprisingly, eagles, even despite their massive size, can hover as well. But hummingbirds take it to the next level because they can hover very well, but they can also fly up, down, forwards, and backwards. Something no other bird can do. In fact, I'm not even sure if any other insect can really fly backwards very well. So they flap their wings up to 5,000 beats per minute. 5,000. I can't do anything 5,000 beats per minute, and they can flap their wings 5,000 times. So the rate of flapping is what makes them hum. They produce a sound, but their noise generation is quite complex. We don't know how their lift and drag production is related to their noise either. And we know that other birds produce noise because they produce it in a different way with their wings. What's more, we don't even know what phase of flapping is responsible and how the pressures created on their wings during the flapping phase affects the noise production. And is there a difference between weights of hummingbirds and the noise that they produce and the amount of noise that they produce? For example, if you have a fat one, does it produce more or less noise than a skinny one? So finally, why do we care though? <laughs> well, apart from this being a really interesting topic from an acoustics point of view, it's actually becoming a more important topic from, for MAVs. So our MAVs are more and more modeled on animal flight and hummingbird flight is incredible. It allows the, anim it allows the animal to do things that no other bird can do. So there is potential in the future that maybe our MAVs will approximate hummingbirds to some extent. And this is especially appealing because hummingbirds flap their wings in a way that is akin to both birds and insects. That's something unique which gives them their, their aerial ability. So as such, it would be nice to know what kind of noise they would be producing and why. That way we could potentially get rid of it. And to give you an idea of how not all flapping flight is created equal, a mosquito apparently produces far more noise than they should given their weight. And that's a little bit surprising because I would have thought that mosquitoes, they want to go undetected, so that would be quiet, but apparently they are not very efficient in terms of their f flying, at least from their um, noise point of view. So to look at this phenomenon in general about how hummingbirds and other insects as well and animals uh, create noise with their flapping, we're going to look at a paper called How Oscillating Aerodynamic Forces Explain the Timber of the Hummingbirds hum and other animals in flapping flight and this paper here is open access you can find a link in the description and the timber of a sound is actually a topic that is near and dear to my heart because I have a lot of trouble uh, finding reasonably priced microphones that cancel out noise but doesn't lose the timber of my voice so even some studio microphones are good but if they were good enough then why is there sound absorbing material in the recording studio studios but I digress so back to hummingbirds and their timber. These researchers experimentally investigated hummingbird flight, and this is <laughs> incredible because anytime you work with animals, especially animals that you don't harm in aerodynamics, is really amazing because you're trying to get them to fly around and you measure them is quite difficult. But what these researchers did is they literally stuck a hummingbird in a wind tunnel. They have a picture down here. So they have this hummingbird in this wind tunnel, 
And this wind tunnel had a couple of configurations. First, they had uh, microphones all around. They had like 2,100 microphones around. So they could effectively create this an array, which then you can triangulate where the sound is coming from based on how long it takes for the sound to get to different microphones. Then they also had uh, these special walls that they could use to measure the forces based on the animal flaps. And then that air hits the wall and then you can measure that, that force. <laughs> so they didn't have to put the hummingbird in position, it would just fly there by on its own accord and, ho and hover there. So a really cool thing additionally what they did was they put some stereo high-speed cameras and videoed the bird flapping. So they could correlate the flapping with the forces produced and then with the help of the microphones relate that back to the sound as well. So they had a correlation between the sound and the forces produced. And this is a really amazing and a complex setup. And in figure 1b, we see the lift and drag results. So let me zoom in a little bit here so we see them. So we have the wing flapping um, throughout its flight from like flapping inwards and then like flapping out. And we see the lift and drag in the blue and red respectively. Interestingly, the wings only produce lift for half of the cycle, so the downstroke. And then for the other half, it produces downforce, and this is during the upstroke. Now the downforce isn't as great as the lift production, but still I thought given how well hummingbirds can articulate their shoulder joints, there might have been a way for it to produce lift on both the downstroke and upstroke, but apparently not. So perhaps there is another reason why negative lift is being produced. Maybe it's, it has something to do with keeping the bird stable in there. As I mentioned, they, they hover, they, they flap their wings 5,000 beats per minute, so maybe they don't need to produce lift with every stroke up and down. They produce enough lift just with the downstroke. And interestingly, on the downstroke, the drag is higher than on the upstroke. And this makes sense because when it comes to flapping flight and flight in general, the more you lift you produce, generally speaking, the more drag you typically produce as well because you're working the flow more. Now, there are some exceptions, for example, if you have um, detached flow source separation, and then that usually results in more drag with less lift, but that's a special circumstance. And on the other hand, even if you have like an airplane or a flapping UAV, um, when you are producing more lift, you are asking more and more of the flow and that uses energy of the flow up. And that creates a deficit in the flow's energy and that leads to drag as well. So that's one good way of looking at it where the more lift you produce, the more energy you're really extracting from the flow and that comes at the consequence of more drag. So figure 2A, let me zoom out a little bit here and go to figure 2A for us. So figure 2A uh, shows a really interesting feature and that is the sound pressure level uh, produced, plotted, in other words, uh, how much sound is produced, and the fundamental frequency is about 45 hertz, and then the harmonics are very, very clearly seen from then on. So the fundamental frequency is 45 hertz, which is quite low, but then the harmonics potentially have more energy in them, which we'll see later on. But in such a situation, we see these harmonics are very clear, but we don't see much broadband noise to it, not nearly as much as what you'd expect, or other tones. That's even more important. So we have literally just one main frequency, the, the fundamental frequency, then the harmonics of that, and then a little bit of broadband noise, and then no other tone. Maybe a couple of tones here, but that's about it. So that means that when this bird is flapping, it only produces one significant tone and no others, and that's where the hum comes from. But more fundamentally, what it means is that there is only one coherent structure really being shared from these wings. Uh, 
that that is very efficient then it means that it's really using this way to generate the lift I guess and that's what the humming is coming from it's really concentrated there so the lack of other tonal noises is quite interesting it indicates um, quite high efficiency of this bird so in figure 3 we see the tonal and broadband noise production in figure 3b so we have the the birds I'll zoom in on the on the near field results instead of the far field results so we have the, the hummingbird here from the side and from the front and we see that the broadband noise at a distance of one meter from the little bird and a sound pressure level of up to 75 decibels is seen just for the broadband side and it appears that the sound is radiated in a dipole fashion so from here you might suspect it's a monopulse which means that the flow the um sound just propagates out in all directions equally effectively but if you look at it from the front of the bird, if you're at the front of the bird, you can see that there's now a dipole sort of action happening, which indicates that at certain points around the bird, you will uh, have less noise than other points. And what's more, from what I can tell, the broadband noise is more or less omnidirectional. Um, there's a, there are a few little um, points here which there isn't too much noise, but apart from that, the dipole is quite well circular. On the other hand, in figure 3D, we see the tonal noise. In this case, there is a lot more directivity to it. So you can see that there are four lobes now effectively. From the side, there are two lobes, and from the other side, there are two lobes. And that means that there, in terms of the tone, like the hum, that will be more um, stronger in certain positions around the bird than other positions, whereas the broadband noise, you kind of hear a lot more equally with just a couple points where you won't hear it as much. So that indicates that for the tonal noise, we get a quadrupole situation happening here. At least that's what I can tell, where the broadband noise is dipole and the uh, tonal noise is quadrupole. So that's a fundamental difference in how the sound is being produced. In addition to this, the researchers looked into more types of flying animals than just hummingbirds. So in figure four, if I scroll down there, we can see here, I'll zoom in on this one, In the it shows the forces and noises produced by mosquitoes, the top one, uh, regular flies, household flies I guess, butterflies and moths, hummingbirds and parrotlets, which are those parakeet budgy things. First of all, the force produced during their wing flapping is given in figure 4a, and the amount of lift produced over the wing flapping is very different from animal to animal. For example, a mosquito produces much more lift on the second half of the wing flap than the first half, I'd say about twice as much, you get a much greater peak here. A fly on the other hand, produces about as much lift in the first half of the flap than the second half of the flap. In contrast, butterflies and moths and hummingbirds and parrotlets produce most of their lift in the first half of their flap. So you can see here, that's the first half, most of their lift. Then in the second half, not very much. That is a little surprising for me because I thought that maybe butterflies, because they have a very different flap to a regular bird, they might have a different uh, lift production. And what's more, butterflies take advantage of their flexible wings. And they use that to boost the lift produced by positioning their wings in the optimal position to the vortices they produce during the flapping motion. For example, butterflies fly by clapping their wings together at the top. It's called a clap and fling um, motion where they clap their wings together at the top and they fling them apart. And in that fling in motion at the leading, at the like edges of the wings, they produce these vortices. And when they have bent wings, these vortices then get sucked in bit by bit over the wings, which then increases the amount of time that these vortices are in contact effectively with these wings and boosts the lift.
Now, on the other hand, as far as I know, birds do not have flexible wings like butterflies and they don't flap in the same way. They don't have this crab and fling position, like style of flapping, uh, particularly like parrotlets where they just have regular bird-like flapping. So for these two very different styles of flapping, they produce very similar lift curves over their wing flap cycles. The similarities and differences don't end there though. When we look at the harmonics across in figure 4b, we see different uh, concentrations of energy across these harmonics. For example, mosquitoes have most of their sound in the second harmonic and then the third harmonic. And the first harmonic, so the fundamental frequency, has almost nothing. Uh, flies are similar in that most of their sound energy is in the second harmonic, but very little energy is found in any other harmonic from there. Surprisingly, butterflies and hummingbirds have similar energy distributions across their harmonics with the maximum found in their first and second harmonics. So the, um, just here and here. But there isn't too much above that. The, the, the butterflies and moths, sorry, I was going to say moths, but butterflies and moths, they are have little energy in the third harmonic, but nothing in the fourth, whereas the hummingbirds have nothing in the third and fourth. Finally, parrotlets have almost all of their sound in just the first harmonic and almost nothing in the rest. So it almost seems like the relationship between the animals flapping and lift production doesn't really affect the way the sound energy is distributed across the harmonics. For example, with the butterfly, hummingbird, and parrotlet, you have very similar amounts of lift being produced in the first half and very similar amounts in the second half of the flaps but the harmonics don't replicate that really. Now, moving on to figure 4e, we see the relationships between the animal's weight and the amount of noise it produces. So we're gonna find out now whether like a overweight hummingbird will be louder than a skinny hummingbird. I don't know hummingbirds, I guess they have skin, they have feathers on top, so you can't have a skinny hummingbird, I guess. So the general trend among the flyers is that the heavier each one of these are, so whether it's a mosquito, a, um, a butterfly, or a parrotlet or whatever, the heavier these are, the more noise that they produce. And that makes sense because they have to disturb the air more to produce the amount of lift that they need. So that is going to produce more lift, generally speaking. However, the exact relationship between weight and noise differs between animals. For example, increasing a mosquito's weight greatly increases the amount of noise produced, but Increasing a parrotlet's weight increases it less. So you can see this slope here. For the, for the mosquitoes, the slope is 2.6 compared to the parrotlets, which is 1.3, so only half. So skinny mosquitoes, so, uh, yeah, skinny mosquitoes, I guess, would go undetected more than fat mosquitoes, so they wouldn't get killed as much. Surprisingly, though, despite being called a hummingbird, the bird's noise generated is somewhat insensitive to its weight, at least compared to other flying animals. So you can see here that the slope of it is only 0.6, and to be perfectly honest, I'm not really sure what the R squared value of this slope is, this line of best fit, because there are quite a few dots around there. For example, there's a, a few dots here where the hummingbird is like not even half the weight, and it produces more noise than ones which are more than double its weight. So from here, we can sort of conclude that hummingbirds can bulk up, and none of its friends will even hear about it. And with that revelation, we come to the end of this podcast. I like this conclusion, not everything should be about weight, no, sorry, not everything should be about weight, and if you agree, hit the like button. And if you want to see more like this, click the subscribe button, or follow button, whichever platform you're on, listen to this. And if you want to get better at CFD, check out our courses and link in the description. And if you want to make your experiments 2-4% to more accurate, get Amsu Hawk. 
The reason why it's called atmospheric Hawk is because it measures the atmospheric properties of air in your wind tunnel. That's important because it, it then gives you the experiment, the density of air in your experiments. You need to do that because density of air changes every day between 2 and 4% and up to 15% throughout the year. So we know like in winter, for example, it's colder, um, the, it's more overcast, so the pressure drops, whereas in summer it's really nice and fine. So imagine doing a wind tunnel experiment and not even actually knowing what the wind speed is. That is what most aerodynamicists are like because even though they think their wind speed is a certain value, they haven't taken into account the actual density of the air. So their calculation is wrong, as is their Reynolds number. <laughs> so imagine not knowing what something as fundamental as the Reynolds number of your experiment is either. <laughs> That's quite funny. But the, problem does, the problems don't stop there either because if you then try to use the data you get from your experiments to value your CFD, it won't work too well either. And that is a problem that many aerodynamicists face. They check their CFD with their experimental results for the validation process, and they see that their CFD is off. And they naturally think, oh, well, it's obviously my CFD. When in fact, it isn't their CFD or even their experiments. Both are right, but they don't have the same density of air between them. So, of course, they're not going to line up. So to get rid of this problem, get rid of get, get yourself an atmosphere hawk and get rid of those errors for you in your research in not only the experiments but also the CFD. And you find a link to that in the description. And I'll see you next podcast. Peace out, amigos.